0: And that, Christ, you are my everything, sometimes when I sing that, I think about, is that really true? And then I remember that my Heavenly Father wants that to be true in my life. And if it's not, His Spirit and His Word will convict me and fix that. Uh, Sometimes I think that God, we think that God is kind of resistant to our sanctification. And he goes, just prove it and prove yourself worthy. Well, you're not worthy of anything that God does. And it's God who is interested in you becoming holy. And God is the wind behind your back pushing you in that direction. And he's the one that cheers you on. If God be for us, then who can be against us? And you know what God is bringing you to? Where the words of songs like that one and others that we sing actually become true in your life. And if they're not, he's more than capable of showing you that. And if they are, he's more than capable of affirming that. And if you're on your way where you say, Lord, that's what I want. That's what I want to be true. And God will bless you as you do that. So uh, thank you for singing and thank you for being a church who loves to worship the Lord. I appreciate that so much. And sometimes I stop singing because I don't know the words. Sometimes I stop singing because I don't know the notes and I'm listening to hear what the choir does. And sometimes I stop because I'm just listening to you. And man, it makes my heart happy to hear you sing. I can only imagine what the heart of the Lord is when his people gather in his name and they sing unto him. What a a sweet sound that is to him to hear his people sing. So don't ever stop singing. Whatever you do, don't lose your song. Even if you're in prison in Philippi at midnight chained up. Remember that story? Paul and Silas, they kept singing. Don't stop singing singing, whatever you do. I'm so glad to have all of my family with us. All of our kids are here and all of our grandkids are here. And um, I I say all of that because it's a joy to have them. But man, does it ever make Sammy old. (laughs) Oh, boy, she's just really wearing down. So pray for her. But uh, we're excited. We're glad to have you all. Welcome uh, and glad to have you back here with us. And uh, yesterday... Some of you were at uh, Tommy McGarry's funeral, and uh, Brother Tommy had called me a while back, and he said, Brother Greg, I'd like for you to uh, be at my service, and I'd like for you to sing, I Have Seen the Light. Well, number one, you can't sing that one by yourself. Number two, I was barely able to breathe at the time that he called. I couldn't make it through what we were doing here. But God gave him enough time and us enough time where Brother Dale was able to get the music together and kind of fudge on lowering the key a little bit. And then Jonathan Durham was here for that, and he was able to fill in for Luke Garrett. And several things today, including that, have made me think of him. And uh, don't you miss Brother Luke? And I was thinking about not singing with him. First time we sang that song without him, and then when we were singing that everything, everything, when we first learned that song, he would echo that, you know, he said, sometimes he scared you when he echoed, (laughs) because his voice was so powerful, but not on that one, and it made me think of him, and I want you to, during this time when we pray, I want you to think about people living or dead, that you thank God for and I want you to say and breathe a word of thanks for them. It may be a family member. It may be a friend. It may be somebody in the church. It may be a pastor that you had back in the day. It may have been a youth leader, a Sunday school teacher, your mom or your dad could be, a grandparent. And I want you to think about people that you are thankful for. And I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a few moments. And I want you to whisper a prayer prayer of thanks for the person that led you to the Lord, for a person that encouraged you in the faith. or you, you get it. And I want you just to say thank you to the Lord for that person. Now, secondly, if they're still living, we don't pray to dead saints. If they're still living, find a way to communicate that to them because you'll encourage them to keep on. Father, as we think about how much we have to be thankful for people come to mind. People that you put into our paths. And I thank you, Lord, that with the things that I'm going through, I I thank you for Dr. Wall and I thank you for Dr. Gorthy and I thank you for Dr. Madden and I thank you for Dr. Patel. I thank you, Father... That this past week, the elders were able to gather when we prayed for Brother Bob Hooker's healing and for Brother Steve, and I thank you that they also prayed for me. I thank you for them. I thank you, Father, for just random texts that I received to encourage me. I thank you, Father, for people who will come and show up to hear me preach. I thank you, Father, for truth that we have so that we have something to preach and I don't have to stand up here and try to figure out how to be a stand-up comic or anything like that. I can just give forth the Word of God and the beautiful gospel and you're the one that gives the increase. I thank you, Father, for people that I've had in my past who have taught me and been patient with me, who were able to speak truth to me but they did it in love. And I thank you, Father, for books that have been written and sermons that have been preached, for teachers that I've had that spent their lives studying things like Hebrew and Greek and church history so that I could glean off of them. I thank you for that. I thank you for my family, and thank you that they're here today. I thank you for the promise of the future that eight grandchildren hold. I thank you, Father, for people in this church that made me excited about coming here to be the pastor. I thank you about people that have prayed for me. And I could go on and on and on. But now, Lord, I turn and say, through the preaching of your word today, may Jesus Christ be exalted, even out of an Old Testament passage that we might be tempted to skip over. May people that are lost come to know Christ today and believers be encouraged. And then, Father, I think about people that are struggling under the burden of sin. May they find relief in Christ and his atonement. May they find that shame and guilt and humiliation is all washed away when we come and we find that we're made right with God through the blood of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for people that are struggling with sickness. And I ask you to heal them, Lord. Please, you're the healer, Jehovah Rapha, please. I pray for people who are struggling under financial pressure. Give them wisdom. Lord, sometimes we think the answer is more money. And if it is, then give them more money. But if it's a matter of just better stewardship, I pray, Lord, that you would teach them your principles. And I pray for people who feel alone, that they would feel the presence of Christ this morning through the Holy Spirit. Pray for people that feel like they're stumbling in the dark. May the word of God be a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path. And so, Lord, as we say all of these thank yous and lay all of our requests, we would really be amiss if we didn't say, Lord, we thank you in all things. You've been so good to us. Thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. Exodus. 27, 9 is where we're going to pick up. Is that right? Yeah, 9. This is uh, where God has instructed Moses to uh, start building a tabernacle. And, uh, you know, we look and uh, we look at the plans of all of this kind of stuff. And we say, uh, yeah, Lord, that really is a blessing. And I'm going to be honest with you. Through a lot of this, the passages we've been through, and this is one of them, I read all of this and I say, Lord, sorry, I don't see anything. I'm not getting anything. And then I remember the psalmist said, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in thy law. And the law, of course, it's what we are reading in now. And then I thought about Jesus saying, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but it is these scriptures which testify of me. And then he goes on to say, Moses was writing of me. Well, sometimes you've got to put a different pair of glasses on, don't you? You have to have different lenses to look at things through. And by the grace of God, we have some things that we want to... Uh, share with you today and things are going to bless you and things are going to affirm you things that are going to encourage you because there is a testimony of the tabernacle if I left it there that well duh of course there is but there's testimony in the courtyard of the tabernacle and what God is saying is You've got the tabernacle here when you build it, when you put all those beautiful and marvelous furnishings in. Whenever you make (coughs) the altar of bronze that we talked about last week that speaks of endurance because only Christ could endure the judgment of God on the cross. He says, now, put a fence up. Why would God want to fence in this holy place? Remember, the tabernacle was called the holy place. Only the priests could go in it. And then there was the holiest place, or the holy of holies. Only the high priest could go into it. But common people could come into the courtyard. And Yet he said, fence it off and uh, hang some tapestries, a fine linen that are embroidered. It was a beautiful thing, but hang those things up. Let's go and let's read what God's holy, inerrant, all-sufficient, eternal word has to say. Exodus 27, verse 9. Found it? Say amen if you have. You shall also make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits, that's about 150 feet, if that helps you, 150 feet long, For one side. And it's 20 pillars. And there are 20 sockets. A a, socket is the thing that would set on the ground. And the post would fit into. And uh, they shall be bronze. And the hooks of the pillars. And their bands. Shall be silver. And likewise. Along the length of the north side. There shall be hangings. 100 cubits long, of course, it's got to match, um, with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. And along the width of the court, on the west side, there shall be hangings of 50 cubits. Well, that's half of 100, so that makes sense. It would be 75 feet. And uh, with their 10 pillars... Again, half, and their 10 sockets. And the width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits. And the hangings on the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits, that's 23 feet, with their three pillars and their three sockets. And um, on the other side, the gate was kind of in the middle, shall be hangings of 15 cubits, 23 feet, with their three pillars and their three sockets. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, that's 30 feet, and woven of blue. Remember, that represents that Christ came from heaven and all of this is divine. ...a purple, which represents his royalty, his kingship... ...and scarlet, which represents his blood... ...or the work that he did when he was on cross... ...woven a blue, purple, and scarlet thread... ...and fine woven linen made by a weaver. In other words, let the prose do that. It shall have four pillars and four sockets... ...and all the pillars around the court... ...shall have bands of silver... ...their hooks shall be of silver... And their sockets of bronze. Verse 18, almost done. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, and the width 50 throughout, and the height, how high is the fence supposed to be? The height, five cubits, which is 7.5, seven and a half feet tall, and made of fine woven linen, and its sockets of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service, meaning out there in the outer court, um, all the pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Okay? Well, I didn't give any amens off of that one. (laughs) Because we read that and it's just a bunch of instructions. But I think when we look at the courtyard of the tabernacle itself, God said, fence it in. And hang up these beautiful tapestries. And in a sense, you might be thinking, it blocks the view. Wouldn't you want everybody out there to actually see the tabernacle and not just the fence? I wonder why he did that. And I wonder why he said, fence it in. And he even gave the dimensions that he wanted when he said, fence it in. Well, first of all, we don't have to understand it for it to be right. And whatever God says, the way he wants something, it's not our job to improve upon it. Moses didn't hire a, an engineer to come in and say, how can we make this better? What God says is good enough. That's the way that he wants it. And that's true not only for building a tabernacle and a courtyard, that's true for our lives. And I just want to ask you a question today. What's wrong with God's standard of morality What's wrong with God's standard of righteousness and holiness? What's wrong with the things that are written in the Word of God that give us instruction for life, wisdom for life? What's wrong with it? Well, some people might say, Well, I've known some people that said all that, and they still messed up. Okay, let me just back up and say, that would be everybody in this room, including me, wouldn't it? We all... Sin against what we know. That's why the Bible says in the New Testament, to him that knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So there are a lot of things. It's not just what I do that's wrong. It's what I don't do that I should have done that becomes sin. That's why Jesus had to die for us, folks. That's why he had to pay for our sins because we're worse than we ever think we are. Sometimes it's easy to look at other people and say, "Well, at least I'm not as bad as them." Well, wait until God makes that observation in your life, because He may be seeing that. Well, maybe I guarantee you, He's seeing things about you that you don't even see and that you don't even understand. And so we think about all of this, and we think about how God told Moses to do this, and how God put this together. Do you think that was just random? Do you think that was just, uh, God said, oh, 150 feet will be good. How many pillars do you want? Oh, 15, 18, 19, I don't know. Maybe maybe we better be safe. We need 18, but let's put 20 in just to make sure. You think God operates like that? Sometimes, if you've ever been involved in a building project, no matter how careful you are, you forget some things. You line out all your tools and all your materials and then there's that one saw blade that you need that uh, you don't have. Or there's that one particular type of tool. Or maybe even a piece of wood and you have to run back and you have to go get it and bring it back through. Well, God doesn't operate like that because he's an all-knowing God. He knows exactly what he wants and exactly what is right. And the reason God said make the, temp- uh, the tabernacle like this is because that's the way he wanted it. And because he's God, then that meant it was right No questions asked, no negotiation, no compromise on any of that. Just do what you're told. And if there's anything that I could say that would make your Christian life more helpful, healthy, profitable, and a blessing to the church, and a blessing to your family, and a blessing to the society in which we live, and I wish I had an audience where I could say this to every church, I would say it just like this. Hey, just do what you're told. Because it's when we don't do what we're told that we end up messing up. And some people will say, Well, sometimes I get a little embarrassed by Christ and church and some of our traditions and some of the things that are old-fashioned. You'll be a whole lot more embarrassed when you sin and you're caught. And even at that, the remedy is what? Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus because he'll welcome you and he'll receive you and he will wash you clean because he's more interested in you being Christ-like than even you are. And that's good news. You say, well, what does that have to do with the tabernacle? Well, we'll get into that. Because I want you to notice the testimony of the tabernacle is this. Number one, it testifies of separation. And we've got to deal with that. We look at the tabernacle and God doesn't just open it up with a, 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 to a courtyard with no boundaries and say, y'all come. He doesn't do that. In fact, God seems to be saying there's a holy space here. There seems to be God putting up a wall, a barrier. If the courtyard is a place where people could gather, well, certainly all two million couldn't gather in there at one time. It's not that big. But think about this. God is saying, I see a difference between the worshipers and the non-worshippers. And sometimes you and I can't tell the difference. I mentioned on the Sunday school audio. And I did it when I was teaching my class this morning. That uh, under the point that universalism is not biblical. And yet we tend to think. Even those of us who believe in heaven and hell. We may tend to think that you know hell is for you know, Hitler. And uh, people like that. But certainly not for my neighbor Bob. Bob's a good old boy. We're filled with good old boys, aren't we? I mean, he mowed my lawn when I was on vacation. His wife brought lasagna to my family when I was sick. I mean, sure, but Bob's a good old boy. God gives, uh, Bob gives money to uh, charity, and he volunteers at the hospital. I mean, surely not him, and yet that's exactly what the Bible says. Bob's not a worshiper of God. Bob is not a believer in Jesus Christ, and Bob is going to die with all of his good works in his sin, and one day we'll stand before the great white throne of Christ and hear our Savior, his judge, say to him, depart from me into the lake of fire. And that's a horrible thing to think about, but that's what it is, because God sees us differently. He doesn't look at us all the same, and I don't believe he loves us all the same. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that whom the Lord loves... He chastises or disciplines. And so when I think about that, I'm going, whatever all of that means, I do know this, that the way God looks at me is different than the way he looks at a lost person. And the way God looks at you, child of God, is different than the way he looks at a lost person. And the way he looks at his church is different than the way that he looks at the world. That was the first thing that I saw. And then I got to thinking about what that fence would do. And most commentators that I read said it kept the outsiders from looking in. And I thought, well, why would that matter? Then I had the thought. The fence, the wall, if you please, was a good thing because it kept the worshiper from looking out. Well, why would that matter? Because when you worship, your focus is not supposed to be on Bob or what they're doing in their tent, or the kids that are running up kicking a soccer ball, or anything else, your focus is supposed to be where? Upon the Lord. And the fence gave the priests and also the congregation that gathered the opportunity to have undistracted focus upon God, which is a pretty good definition for worship. Undistracted focus on God. Do you know how hard it is? Well, you're telling me, do you know how hard it is to pay attention in church? Do you know how hard it is not to get distracted in church? Things that you would not notice in the grocery store, you notice in church. Things that you would not notice even in your living room, you notice in church. And you've got an enemy and you've got a cooperative flesh that will make sure and point out everything everybody else is doing. Have you ever been gathered around a table and say, okay, let's pray. And uh, bow our heads, close our eyes, let's pray and thank God for the food. And then you pray. And when you get through, you have one of your little children or grandchildren go, Mommy was peeking. You ever had that happen? Well, what does that mean that little Johnny was doing? And yet he's going to condemn somebody else. Can I say to you, if you come to worship and you're easily distracted by everybody else, That's because you're peeking at the wrong place. You should have your focus upon God. And that's what the fence was for. Blocking out all of the things of the world. Blocking out all of the people who were not worshiping. Blocking out all of that because every one of us need at least a time where we can come together and collectively put our thoughts toward God. Sing the praise toward God. And hear the truth. Of the word of God. In their case it would have been Moses law. That they would be learning. So that we can have undistracted devotion toward the Lord. It testifies of separation. You will be a different person. If you were one who actually focuses upon God and witnesses. In Revelation 19 verses 9 and 10. uh, It speaks about our tendency. Yours and mine. And even the beloved disciple, the Apostle John, to do what? To worship the wrong things. And sometimes we worship preachers. Sometimes we worship uh, stuff that we have. I mean, you can think of all kinds of things. And And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So what was John's response to that? I'd like to think that I said hallelujah. But look at what John did. And I don't think I'm as good a Christian as John was. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. The angel. If anybody knew better, it should have been John. And even he got distracted and started worshiping the wrong thing. Hey folks, if John could do it, in a vision given to him by God with an angel standing in front of him I promise you you and I have all kinds of idols that we would bow down to whatever the circumstance much quicker and not even realize that we're doing it one of the greatest things that could happen to you is for God to reveal to you today the idols of your heart so you could put them to death and forsake them once and for all And notice the angel panics. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I wonder how many times in our lives we cause angels to panic. They're not worshiping you, Father. They're not worshiping the right God. Stop it. And then the Holy Spirit has to convict us and to draw us away from all of that. We worship reputation. We worship popularity. We worship what other people think. We worship our own human abilities. We worship our own human goodness. We worship in our pride and self-sufficiency and all the while condemning other people, don't we? Got to be careful about all of that. We might be worshiping the wrong God. Secondly, it testifies of redemption. You'll notice here that as God gives a thing, he doesn't just say, come in any way you want. Oh, here's a shovel. You can dig underneath and come in to worship me. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, oh, if you're going to come worship me, you're going to need a ladder. Come on in. Climb up over the, it's only seven and a half feet. You can do that. Climb up over and come in. He doesn't do that. You know what he does say? I'm going to put a gate in. And you enter in through that one gate. You don't come the way you want. You don't come the way you think is best. You come through the gate that I have provided. And that reminds me, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It reminds me of Jesus saying, I am the door. What do you do with the door? You walk through it. And when Jesus says that, he's saying, this is exclusive. There's only one way to get in. That's what the tabernacle courtyard testified us. Here's this fence. Where do we go in? Where's the entrance? Well, it's not here. It's not here. It's not. Oh, here it is. And we go through the gate. Only one way to get in. And through God, there's only one way to get in, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. Only one way into heaven. But when you walked in to that gate, what's the first thing you see? A bright light, beautiful music, and uh, all of those kind of things. No, 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 no. The first thing you see is what we looked at last week, that bronze altar. And you're confronted with the fact that the need for a sacrifice, this is what the Pharisees didn't get. See, the Pharisees thought, offering a sacrifice, just another ritual that makes me right with God and better than other people. No, folks, the sacrifice is the admission that you have failed to keep the law of God. And so when you walk in through that one gate, immediately you're confronted with what? There must be a sacrifice for your sins. Not just any sacrifice, not the sacrifice of your choosing, not the sacrifices of the world, but the sacrifice that God demands and that God provides. You can't go in to fellowship. You can't go in to worship. You can't go in, even if you're a priest, to eat of the bread on the table. You can't do any of that until the need for the sacrifice has been met because God demands the sacrifice. We are sinners who have to be redeemed and we're immediately confronted with that, with that altar and sin has to be confessed. Have you confessed any today? That's a part of worship. And it also has to be forsaken. And as you forsake it, God gives you the power and the strength to leave here different than you came. But if you're dealing with everybody else's sin and all of their shortcomings and their failures and not your own, you'll leave the way you, well, you'll leave worse than you came in. Then you'll have the audacity to say, well, church just doesn't work for me. Don't you blame God for your failures. Don't you dare blame God for your failures. You hear me? And so that's why the Bible talks about this. God says, I can bring atonement. One writer said, atonement for sins is the basis for reconciliation because God has judged our sins in the person of Christ who died on the cross in our place. The death of Christ has forever, ever satisfied God's righteous demands for our sin. And it is on this basis that he can accept sinners before his throne of grace. The blood of Christ is the only coin in the heavenly realm that God accepts as payment for our sin debt. And Christ paid our sin debt in full. Somebody say amen for that. That, that deserves it, isn't it? And that's good news. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 through 19 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You see, today, where is the tabernacle? Where is the temple? Right here. Point at yourself. Right here. And the tabernacle testified of Christ, and so should you. So should you. Everywhere you go in and everything you do, you have that ministry of reconciliation. Okay, if I could make a request, please listen faster, okay? Okay. Number three, it testifies a fellowship. This courtyard was the place where the people could go. They couldn't go in the tent of the tabernacle. They couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, but they could go into the courtyard. And there in the courtyard, they could offer sacrifices. Not all of the sacrifices were for sin. Some were for praise and thankfulness to the Lord. Think about all of the singing that must have gone on. I'm I'm dying to know what the tune and the rhythm was to the Psalms. I can't see rhyme or reason, but can you imagine? Hey, David, would you play Psalm 51 on your harp and sing it to me? And there David sings his song of confession without shame or embarrassment because that's all in the past and all that's been paid for and covered by the blood of Christ. And yet he can be honest and authentic about his own sin and he can sing that song. And you know what I'm going to say? Wow. I never heard it like that before. Because songs just don't read quite the same way that they sing. And so when we think about These songs that they would sing, what were they singing to the Lord? The fathers and the mothers sang the same thing that their children and their grandchildren would sing. And for generations, all during the life of the tabernacle, all the way until Solomon built his temple, they would sing. Now you say, well, that's why I don't like these new songs. Well, understand, the whole book of Psalms had not been written yet because David didn't live for a long time. So even in this period, there were new songs, new psalms being introduced. That's always good because I can sing. Can I make a confession? I can sing Amazing Grace and make my grocery list out at the same time but when we were singing today about hope has a name not as familiar with that one I couldn't make out a grocery list and sing that at the same time I had to think and sometimes the good thing about new songs is you can't just sing them by rote now don't get me wrong I love singing the old songs and I love the memories that are associated with them don't you but I like the new ones because I can't coast I have to think I have to concentrate on it, and sometimes that means that the message goes deeper into my soul through something new, unfamiliar, and, frankly, sometimes a little bit weird to my ears. That's okay, because the song is not about whether I like it or not. It's about whether it glorifies God, and it's about whether it imparts truth that's biblical. And when that happens, when I'm thinking, when I'm struggling, when I miss a few notes, When I sing some different words, when I'm thinking about all of that, it's working in my heart. And that's what they were doing for all of these generations. They had the same word, the law of Moses, and all of them were learning it together. When they would sing, they would all sing the same songs, and they would learn them together. They would offer the same sacrifices, and they would do it probably most of the time at the same time. And all of this was doing what? It was solidifying their fellowship together. They were one. They lifted each other up when another one fell down. And the Bible does say that when you see a brother overtaken in sin. How many of you have ever seen another Christian overtaken in sin? Let me just see your hand. Okay. Now, what does it say to do? Expose them? Gossip about them? Criticize them? Reject them? It's not what Paul said in Galatians. He said, when a brother is overtaken in a fault, I think the King James says, you who are spiritual, okay, how many spiritual people do we have here today? Don't raise your hand. That'd be embarrassing. (laughs) I would think all of you. What are you supposed to do? Restore, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, lest you also be tempted. You know what I found out about judgmental, legalistic Christians who don't want to restore, but they want to do finger-pointing and gossiping and slandering and condemning? They're usually the next to go. And then they wonder why nobody is helping them. Well, it's because you made your will to be known. Yeah, you're reaping what you sow. You made your bed, you got to lie in it. And unfortunately, if you lay down with the dogs, you wake up with fleas, don't you? And so this thing is where they could lift one another up. Why is he offering the sacrifice of an adulterer? Uh Uh-oh. We better get with him. His marriage needs it. His purity needs it. Why is that person offering that particular offering? See, we today, we're scared to death to ever come to the front kneel and pray. People might wonder what we've done. Well, just tell them, hey, I've done far more than you would ever know about, and everything I did would shock you. I'm dealing with God. I'm dealing with God. And we are here, by the way, to help one another. All of us fall into sin of some type. Granted, some has greater consequences than others, but yet it all required the blood of Jesus to save us. Why aren't we helping one another, restoring one another? And it doesn't take an official action of the church to do so. It just takes you caring to pray and caring to get involved, caring to be a listening ear, caring enough to speak truth into their lives and encourage them to do that. That's the ministry of reconciliation that Paul spoke of, getting right with the Lord. And this is so important. Same songs, same law. Same sacrifice. And they would celebrate and feast together with joy. Psalm 84, verse 2. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. The courts of the Lord. That's that courtyard he's talking about that Moses was to build. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. I wonder how long it's been since you felt that way about gathering wonder how long it's been since you said, I can't wait to worship. I can't wait to be together with the people of God. I can't wait to restore somebody. I can't wait to provoke or stimulate somebody else to love and good deeds. I just can't wait to be with the body of Christ. Well, that's what David's saying. I want to be there for me, but more importantly for others, and above all of that, for the glory of the Lord. Well, you talk about Reformation. That would reform everything that we do. So that's another testimony of the tabernacle. God wants His people, Acts 2:42 to continue in fellowship. And number four, it testifies of incarnation and connection. You know what uh, is interesting about the tabernacle? It Didn't have any carpet. Why? Because it didn't have a floor. No pavers. No gold, no silver, no bricks. Just what? Desert. Dust. Dirt. All of that is what this was set up on. When they put up the fence, they didn't take post hole diggers. Man, I hate those things. And dig it out and put them down. Why? Because this wasn't permanent. This thing was mobile. We're going to move. Time to go. Pack up. And they would pack up everything, even the fence. And they would move it. It was made where they had these sockets on the ground made of bronze that the post would fit right down in. The tent sat right down on the dirt and on the ground. Well, wouldn't you think the Lord would want better housekeeping than that? Wouldn't you think that the Lord would say, you know, put a decent floor in there. You don't have a dirt floor in your house. What's up with all of this? Because it's a picture. It's a picture here of incarnation and connection. You know what it is? It's a picture of God coming down to earth, to the dirt. And Jesus became one of us. And you know what we are? Children of dirt. Aren't we? Children of dirt. We wallow in the dirt. We're made of the dirt. And we live in the dirt. And the dirt is all we know. And what is one thing that you call somebody that always is in the dirt? Think of pig pen on Charlie Brown. They are dirty. And Jesus Christ came down. And the tabernacle testifies of him. But it connects with the dirt in the wilderness. As a picture of what God was doing when he sent his son. Connecting with us. Becoming one of us. He got in the dirt with us. And on the cross he took the dirt. And he paid for it in his own blood. The tabernacle and the fact that it was just set... on the ground in the desert... tells us that Christ came and lived among us. He was, Isaiah says... a root out of dry ground. That tabernacle setting up on top of that dry, dusty ground... was a testimony of Christ... the one who would come and be the beauty. And notice that when they went inside... even if you were a priest... The beauty's not down on the ground. What do you see on the ground? Even in the Holy of Holies, just dirt. There's miles and miles and miles of that dirt. That dirt gets in our faces. It gets on our bodies. It gets in our clothes. It gets in our throat. It dries us out and parches us, which reminds me. Right? And yet in the Holy of Holies, when the high priest went in, if he looked down... He would see the dirt. You know what? We see enough dirt. The reason God put those beautiful curtains and veils, even in the ceiling is because the priest looks down, he sees dirt. But when he looks up, he sees glory. He sees beauty. He sees peace and all of those things. And it reminds me that the Bible tells us we're to be looking up for the return of Christ, for example. We're to be looking up where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father, right? Set your minds on things above, not on the things of the dirt. It testifies of the beauty and the holiness that is only found when we look up. And then lastly, it testifies of welcome. Where'd I get that? We'll end with this. God didn't have to put a gate in at all, did he? God put in a gate, a door, and he put in that altar of bronze for sacrifice because what he says to sinners like you and like me, welcome. Welcome into the family of God. Welcome into fellowship with God. And when I come and I walk in through that door, the one and only door of Jesus Christ, and when I put my faith and trust in what he did When he died on the cross for my sins. And realize that Christ is both the altar and the sacrifice and the priest who offered it. He's all. And when I hear the words, it is finished. I can walk around the altar. And I can come over where I can sing. I can come over where I can pray. I can come over where I can hear and understand the law of God. And I can take my brother's hands And I can fellowship together with them and we can hold one another up, restore one another when we fall, rejoice with one another when we have any kind of success at all, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And on my behalf, inside the tent, there is a priest who is doing what I could never do and he's doing it on my behalf just as today in heaven I have a priest. You have a priest who is in heaven Doing something that you could never do. And his own blood is on the mercy seat where it counts. In heaven. Therefore, because of Jesus, God is able to say to us... Yes, you're a sinner. But I paid for your sin when I died on the cross. Yes, you are going to die. But I conquered death, hell, and the grave... When I rose from the dead on that third day. Yes you struggle through life. But I am a compassionate. Sympathetic high priest. And even when you are tempted. And even when you fall. I understand. And I'm there to render you aid. And I'm there to help you get up. To clean up. And to press on. For the glory of God. God never calls for you to sin and then drop out and quit. He calls for you to repent, to be cleansed, and re-engage wherever you can. Why? Because the tabernacle is giving us, even in its courtyard, a testimony. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, the spirit and the bride say, Come, come. And if you're thirsty, cry out to God. He's here to give water to the thirsty. Every time I say that, I hear Papa Sam preaching when I was a teenager and saying that Jesus says, come if you're thirsty. And somebody goes, I'm not thirsty. And he goes, then I'm not talking to you. <laughs> so I say to you today, are you thirsty? Come to Jesus. Repent of your sins and put your faith and trust In him because yes there's a wall and yes there's a separation but there's also redemption and there's also fellowship and it's all based on the incarnation of Christ who came to be a child of dirt like us and there because of his grace is a welcome it's a welcome And God saves you according to the good pleasure of His will. In other words, He is happy to save you. He's thrilled about saving you. In fact, all of heaven throws a party when a sinner repents. Isn't that right? And so when you think about all of that, think about the testimony of the tabernacle and its courtyard and all that it means. And that is what God has given for you. May we pray? Lord, some need to put their faith and trust in Christ this morning. Maybe somebody who's watching online. Maybe somebody here. Maybe somebody who's thought they were saved. Maybe somebody who's tried hard to live the Christian life. And today, I pray your spirit would overwhelm them and show them that they can't, but you can and you have. And may they hear the welcome of God as you bring them in and draw them in according to your sovereign plan. That you might save them and forgive them and use them for your glory. Help a Christian here today who feels like they've stumbled. They've messed up. And all they want to do is hide and retreat in shame and in despair. Oh, Father, that here they might find a place where we lift them up. Where we help them to get right with God. Where we restore them because we indeed are spiritual people. And let us also think about this testimony of the courtyard in terms of our own life. We once were separated from you because of our sin. But you are the one who redeemed us because you are the redeeming God. You're the offering. Thank you that you brought us into fellowship. Not only with you, but oh Lord, what would we do without our brothers and sisters in Christ? What would we do without people to love us? to teach us, to pray for us and encourage us. Thank you, Lord, for fellowship. And then you remind us of our sympathetic high priest because you came and planted your feet firmly in the dirt of this world. And you did it so that you could forgive us and you could also be our defender at the right hand of God the Father. And thank you, Lord, that when we came into believe, and faith. Thank you that it wasn't reluctantly that you brought us in. You didn't bring us in because you were trapped. You didn't bring it in because you had to. You didn't bring us in like the last person chosen for a baseball team. You welcomed us in as though we were the captain of the team. Because we were not coming on our own power or strength, but we were coming in Christ. And we're welcomed into the family of God just as Jesus is welcomed. And one day we'll be welcomed into heaven just as Jesus is welcomed. Hallelujah for that wonderful truth. So Lord, let us never look at this the same again. May the tabernacle itself cause us to look up and to see the beauty and the power and the grace of God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And if you agree, would you say amen? God bless you and thank you for being here today.